All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 4 tonight. Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4 tonight. We are going to be looking at the uh, second part of this story about Deborah and Barak, judges in uh, Israel, as we've been looking through this, uh, the book of Judges over the last weeks and We'll continue to do so, Lord Lord willing, for a little while as we go through and study the lives of these different characters. It was two weeks ago when we last looked at uh, this study, and uh, we saw initially the uh, um, how that God commanded Barak to go and, and fight against the army of the Canaanites, but he was unwilling to do so. And it's interesting to me, and I've mentioned this several times, But it's interesting to me that in Hebrews chapter 11, um, some of these characters from the book of Judges, like Samson, Gideon, and Barak, are mentioned as great examples of faith. Um, Because as you read the story here, especially in Judges chapter 4, Barak does not seem like the kind of guy that was really a giant of the faith. Because in fact, he was not willing to obey God's command unless the woman, the prophetess Deborah, went with him. He was actually a coward. He was afraid to go into battle unless she came with him. And so she agreed to come. And, and we left off the last time in, in, uh, in uh, verse number 10. And it says, And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. And tonight we're going to pick up the story and uh, we're going to be covering uh, this, uh, this entire chapter, uh, the rest of the chapter, so verses 11 through 24. And the title of the message tonight is Jail and the Nail. Jail and the Nail. Let's begin reading in verse number 11. Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zanim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak the son of Abinoam was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him, from Harasheth of the Gentiles unto the river Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and ten thousand men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all the host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would instruct us at this time through the truth of your word. Lord, emphasize to us the importance of faithful obedience. And encourage us, Lord, that when we obey you and when we walk by faith, we are guaranteed victory. Not because of anything that we do, but because of what Christ has already done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up where we left off with our story, in verse number 11, 
Uh, we're introduced to a guy who, at, at least initially, it seems kind of random that his name is inserted into the narrative here. Uh, his name is Heber the Kenite. And he is a relative, a distant relative of Moses back in the day. And we're told in verse number 11 that he had set up his, uh, uh, his estate, his homestead, if you will, in the plain of Canaan, which is by Kadesh. Now, verse number 11 is just kind of a, here's the fact, stick that on the back burner, we're going to come back to it in just a minute, kind of a thing. So just remember this guy, Heber the Kenite. Now we skip down to verse number 12, and we find that somehow Sisera, who if you remember, he was the general of the Canaanite army, he got word that the Israelites were assembling an army to fight against the Canaanites. And so he had heard about what Barak had done, how he had gathered together these 10,000 men, how they had gone to Mount Tabor. And so in verse number 13, he immediately begins to launch an offensive against them. His idea here is to try and head them off at the pass, if you will. He wants to surround them. He wants to just totally overwhelm them uh, with the uh, might of the Canaanite army and catch them as best he can off guard. So he immediately goes into action. Now verse number 13 again tells us a little bit about the army. In particular, they had 900 chariots of iron. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, that was significant because that was pretty much one of the most deadly weapons in the army's arsenal in that day. Kind of roughly the equivalent of a modern day tank. I mean, a tank is a pretty formidable weapon. And if you had 900 tanks involved in an assault, that would be a, even by today's standards, that would be a pretty overwhelming force. Because not only were these chariots made of iron, they were also designed uh, to just cause as much harm as possible. They would often take metal blades and attach them to the wheels of these chariots. So as they drove through the ranks of the enemy, uh, they would just be uh, just demolishing them. It was really pretty brutal what they would do with these. And they had 900 of these chariots. We don't know exactly how big the Canaanite army was, uh, but it could have very easily uh, numbered 25 to 40,000 or even more. And remember, all that Barak has is 10,000. So already he's outnumbered, they're outgunned as we would say, and here is Sisera now taking the opportunity to launch this offensive to try and uh, go ahead and take care of Barak. And in verse number 14, it says that they came, or verse 13 says they came to the river Kishon. And in verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, up, for this is the day which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So she's basically saying, all right, it's time. Get down there. Get in the battle. Start fighting. God has already given you the victory. And so, Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Now, it's verse number 14 that is the reason why Barak is listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Because he did actually engage the enemy, even though the enemy had an overwhelming force, they had the superior firepower, he, at the commandment of the Lord, though we recognize that he didn't do everything right, he did at least in the end obey God and attack the enemy even though the odds were stacked against him. And so verse 15 tells us that the Lord discomfited Sisera. That means that his army was in total array. It was all confusion. 
All order was gone from their formations. Everybody was going every which way. And it was just mass chaos. And all of the host, verse 15, with the edge of the sword of Barak. In fact, it got so bad that verse 15 tells us that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. Now, if you had the option of riding in a chariot as you retreated versus running on foot, which would you take? You'd probably take the chariot, right? Because it's a much better chance that you're going to actually be able to get out alive. But the battle was so bad that Sisera, the general of the army, ended up having to flee on foot. He had to abandon his chariot and leave. Now, we don't really know exactly what happened here and how God did this. We do know that in in chapter number 5, Uh, As Barak and Deborah are singing this song of praise to the Lord for the victory that he gives them, they mention that the stars in their courses fought against Sisera and that his army was swallowed up by the river Kishon. Uh, It's my belief, based on those statements, that that there was some kind of weather event that was brought about supernaturally. Some have speculated maybe it was a hailstorm or something like that. But whatever God used... God was the one who brought the victory that day. It was not because Barak was such a brilliant military leader, because he wasn't. He was reluctantly there, remember? Remember Deborah had to call him up basically and say, Hey buddy, hasn't God told you to get down and fight Sisera? It wasn't because their army was so powerful, because they really weren't. They were... Excuse me, they were outnumbered, um, probably three or four to one, and they had, uh, their weapons were much, in, much inferior to the, to the Canaanites, and so it wasn't because he was brilliant, it wasn't because their, their army was so powerful. The reason that they had victory that day was because God gave them the victory. Notice again the words of Deborah. She said, for the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thy hand, verse number 14. God gave the victory that day. Verse 16 tells us, But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host, and Herosheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. This was a total and complete victory for the Israelites. The entire army of the Canaanites that was led by Sisera was destroyed. And at verse, the point of verse number 16, all but one. Because in verse 17 it says that, Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Okay, so now we go back to verse number 11 and we find out who this, this Heber the Kenite is. He was a distant relative of Moses. He was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And he had severed himself from the Kenites, he had separated from the family clan, and he had pitched his tent in a place called Zainim. So he's kind of a, kind of a loner, kind of a hermit, if you will. He's kind of just a, a, a guy that's off by, on his own. However, it says, verse number 17, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. So Heber the Kenite had... Uh, some kind of an alliance with Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. Now, whether this was an official peace treaty or whether this is just, you know, they were getting along and so they were just willing to leave each other alone. Uh, Heber was seen by Sisera 
uh, as a man who, who would offer him protection. And so he went to Heber the Kenite, to his, uh, his homestead, if you will, and he ends up at the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now, many of these people lived in tents. They were kind of nomadic. They would travel around with their flocks and their herds, finding the best pasture land. So that's why she's in a tent and not a house. And so as he's running on foot from the battle, he finds himself here and at the tent of this, uh, this lady by the name of Jael. Verse number 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. Now, again, remember, Sisera is going here because he thinks that he's going to find refuge. He thinks this is a safe place. He thinks that they'll hide him. He thinks that they'll probably protect him so that he can eventually get back, get back home and, uh, and continue his life. And so initially, Jael, very smart woman, makes it appear that that's exactly what she's going to do. Come on in. Come on here. Get in the tent. Lay down. We'll cover you up. And uh, you you can wait here while the battle uh, subsides. He said unto her, verse number 19, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. Reasonable request. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Interesting. And he said unto her, verse 20, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there any man here? Thou shalt say no. Now he's asking her to lie for him. And so there is Sisera laying down. He just had a, a, a nice cool drink of organic milk. Whole milk, by the way, not skim. Blech. Remember, he's tired. He's been fighting. He's been running on foot for who knows how long. I I mean, easily a couple of miles, maybe more than that. He's exhausted. He's frightened. He's scared. And now he's laying in this tent with a belly full of milk. And so verse 21, Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took her hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nails into his temples. And fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. And I like the last three words. So he died. That's what happened there. He died. I like how God does that for us. You know, in case you didn't understand what happens if you get a nail driven through your skull, he died. Verse 22, and behold, as Barak pursued Sisera... Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, for Cicero's, or excuse me, for Barak's sake here, I'm sure that he was very glad that they won the battle that day. But for him, it was bittersweet. Because if you remember back earlier in the chapter, when he told Deborah, in verse number 8, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. 
But if thou will not go with me, then I will not go. She said to him in verse number 9, I will go with you. But the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. For Barak, this victory was bittersweet. Because the one who would go down in history as the hero of that day was not Barak who led 10,000 men to fight an overwhelming force. It was a humble woman by the name of Jael who seized a God-given opportunity to bring deliverance ultimately to the children of Israel by taking out the leader of their army with nothing more than a tent peg and a hammer. Yes, they won. But ultimately, Barak lost out on the joy and the reward that he could have had because he did not obey in total faith initially. Now, as I think about this story, there's so much, so much about it that just, to me, speaks to us in, in how we so many times... We struggle to simply have faith and obey God. God tells us to do something, and our initial response a lot of times is like, yes, is not, yes, Lord, we'll, I'll do it right away. A lot of times our initial response is, ah, I don't know about that. That doesn't make me feel comfortable. I'm, I'm not sure about that. And too often we obey, but we do it re- reluctantly. And it's because our faith is weak. And I think there's two lessons we learn from this story. One from Barak and one from Sisera. From Barak, we learn the grace of God to give us victory even when our faith is weak. Aren't you glad that God is gracious and merciful? Aren't you glad that God does not require you to live a life of perfection in order to see victory? I mean, think about it. If the burden was totally on you and me to do everything right all the time in order to have a blessed life, would any of us live a blessed life? No. Why? Because we are weak. Our flesh is weak. We often sin. We often fall short even of what we wish we would do. And yet God is so gracious that He will give us victory even when we fail. Because Barak started in doubt. He started in disobedience. And yet God still gave him the victory. His faith and his obedience was dependent on Deborah from the human standpoint. He said, if you don't go, I'm not going. You know, our faith should never be dependent on someone else. Never. Your faith should not be dependent on your spouse, on a parent, on a friend, on a sibling, on a pastor, on a Sunday school teacher, on a youth pastor. Your faith should not be dependent on anyone else. Your faith should depend on God and God alone. You should be willing to have faith and believe God, and obey God, even if everyone else were to abandon you. I'm so grateful, though, that for most of us, that will never happen. We will never have to face a time in our life when 
everyone abandons us. We may go through times where we feel like we're alone and we feel like that maybe uh, everybody has abandoned us, but the truth is most of us will never be at a point in our life where everyone has actually abandoned us. But even if that were to happen, we should still have faith in God. Even if we have to stand alone. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because here's the thing. Even if everyone else abandoned you, God never will. Do you believe that? If you believe that, say amen. God will never abandon you. Over and over again, He's promised in His Word that He will always be there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And listen to Paul's testimony here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 16. He said, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it might not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding, notice this, verse 17, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul said, even though there was a time in my life in which everybody had abandoned me, all had forsaken me, God still stood with me. And not only did He stand with me, He strengthened me and enabled me to do what He had called me to do, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And God ultimately delivered him out of the mouth of the lion from the attacks of Satan. We should have faith regardless of who around us has faith. And understand this. It only takes a small amount of faith to see God do great things. You know, one of the, one of the big problems of the prosperity gospel heresy, and that's what it is, it's a heresy, is that the prosperity gospel teaches if you have enough faith, well, then you can be rich and you can be healthy and never have to worry about any, any material trouble in life. If you have enough faith. And they say if you don't have enough money or if you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. And what they mean by that is really that you have to have faith in your own faith. And if you have enough faith in your own faith, well, then you can have whatever you want. But you know what God says about the amount of our faith? In Matthew chapter 17... In verse number 20, Jesus saith unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How big is a mustard seed? Do you know how big a mustard seed is? It is smaller than a grain of rice. If you take a grain of rice, cut it in half, that's still just a little bit bigger than your average mustard seed. That's not very big. But God says if you had that much faith, nothing would be impossible to you. You see, it only takes a little bit of faith to see God do great things because ultimately it's not faith in my faith, it's faith in God. And though my faith is small, God is big. 
It only takes a little bit of faith. And that's what we see in Barak. He only had a little bit of faith. And it was a weak faith. He only went because Deborah agreed to go with him. But when he did finally, by faith, come down off that mountain and engage the enemy, God gave him the victory. Because that's who God is. He is a God who delights in honoring the faith of His children, who has promised that He will always be with us and that He will give us the victory. Sometimes, though, we want to believe, we want to have faith, but we go through periods of time in which our doubts seem to just overwhelm us. Have you ever been there? you ever gone through a season of life where you wanted to believe, you know what God's Word says, and, but you're, you're just struggling because everything that is going on around you seems to contradict what God says and everything that's going on inside you seems to contradict what God says. And you want to believe, but you're just, you feel overwhelmed by your doubts. What do you do at a time like that? It's at times like that that we just simply need to cry out to God for His help to believe. I I, I often think of the words of the father in Mark chapter 9 and verse 24. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So many times that we, we face doubts in our life, that's the prayer we need to go back to right there. Lord, I believe. I know you can. I know what your word says. I know in my head what is the truth, but Lord, there's this doubt that I'm struggling with. So Lord, help thou mine unbelief. And I believe if if we will just simply have faith in God to overcome our doubts, that our faith would grow. God knows our weaknesses, does He not? And that includes the weaknesses of our faith. God knows when we struggle with doubt. He knows when we're having a hard time just simply believing. And the good news is that His grace is more than sufficient to make up for our weaknesses. And truly that through our weaknesses, God's grace and God's strength can be displayed in our life. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 9. When he had besought the Lord three times for his thorn in the flesh, God said, no, I'm not going to heal you of it. He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. Sometimes when we're struggling to believe, we wish that God would simply remove all of the obstacles that are causing the doubt. But oftentimes God says, No, I'm not going to remove the obstacles. Instead, I'm going to give you the grace to overcome them. And it is through our weakness then that God's strength is on full display. From Barak we learn that God will graciously give us the victory if we will just have faith in Him. And then we learn a lesson from Sisera. From Sisera, this was the general of the Canaanite army, we learn the folly of trusting in our own strength, in our own weapons, and in our own ingenuity. I I just imagine in my mind that when Sisera went to attack the Israelites, he was confident that they were going to win. He probably thought this is going to be the shortest battle in the history of Israelites versus Canaanites. I mean, this is a a guaranteed win here. Our army is so much larger than theirs. Our weapons are so much better than theirs. There is no way that we can lose this. 
And the next thing you know, he finds himself running away, hiding in the tent of jail. He trusted in his own strength, in his own weapons, his own power, his own intelligence, and he found the folly. He found that when you trust yourself, you fail. I like Psalm 27, 20, that is, verse 7. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That ought to be our motto right there. Let everybody else trust in all of their machines and all of their intelligence and all of their learning and all of their money and all of their influence and all of their power. Let everybody else trust in all of those things, but we will remember the name of our Lord. We will trust in God because victory ultimately comes from God and God alone. Spiritual victory comes through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. 1 John 4 and verse number 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Victory comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did Christ achieve that victory for us? Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love that the Bible uses imagery that we can relate to like athletics and sports and farming and, and warfare and different things like that. We understand the idea of victory like in a, a sports a competition perhaps. You have two teams that face off and they, they battle one another for points and at the end of the match, the end of the game, one team comes out on top. Well, how did the Lord Jesus Christ gain the victory for us? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ... How did Jesus gain the victory for for us? By defeating death. Death was our greatest enemy. The penalty of sin. It was an enemy that you and I could not defeat. No amount of work on our part, no amount of fighting would destroy death. We couldn't do it. The Lord Jesus Christ had to do it for us. And He defeated death By dying, being buried, and then rising again. It is through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that sin and death were defeated. And so that now Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. And when you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were drafted onto the winning team. It's not a matter of fighting as a Christian in order to achieve victory. Yes, we are in a fight, but we fight from a position of having already achieved the victory. Jesus has already won it for us. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. Your sin is defeated through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so when you are tempted by, by Satan to give in to the lusts of your flesh and to sin against God, you might think to yourself, I don't have a choice. This is overwhelming. But the truth is, you do have a choice. You can resist the temptation. You can be righteous because sin is no longer in control of you. Satan is no longer in control of you. Jesus Christ has defeated them. And you are now living in a position of victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Overcometh. The word there, you may be interested to know that, is the word Nike. Like the brand of clothing and shoes. It's a Greek word that means to be victorious. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Are you born of God? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again? If so, say amen. Then what the Bible tells you, what God is saying to you tonight is you have overcome the world. Not you should, but you have. You are already a victor. And notice the end of verse number 4, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. By faith, we enjoy the victory. Verse 5, for who is he that overcometh the world? Here it is. He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That is how we come to be on the winning side, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not have to be defeated by sin. You do not have to live under the thumb of Satan. You do not have to be defeated by your doubts. You can live a victorious Christian life. Romans 8.37 says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. But sadly, not all Christians live a victorious life. Many Christians live under the oppression of sin that they have chosen. What's the problem there? How does that happen? If we're already on the winning side in Jesus, how do we experience defeat? It's when we turn away from the Lord and instead of trusting in Him and walking by faith, we trust in ourselves and we walk in the flesh. That is when we forfeit the victory and experience defeat in the Christian life. And any Christian who is living in defeat is living below God's standard. The normal Christian life should be a life of victory. So many Christians think, well, I, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. This is just, it's how, it's how I am. It's who I am. It's because of this in my background. It's because of what this person did to me. You do not have to live a defeated life. One of the biggest problems that I have with modern psychology is they want to make everything into a disease, an illness, a sickness. You know what happens when they do that? They're basically saying, you can't help it. You're just going to have to learn to deal with it. 
They call someone who is addicted to alcohol, they, they say that they have the disease of alcoholism. Now, I understand that when you're addicted to a chemical substance like alcohol or whether it's other kinds of drugs or anything addictive like that, there are certain physical symptoms that you have and you have withdrawal symptoms if you try to get away from it. And I understand that some of those things they may call diseases. But if you're addicted to alcohol, it's not because you were walking down the street and you contracted the alcoholism bug like you would get the common cold. That's not how that happens. If you're addicted to alcohol, it's because you chose at some point to take your first drink. And then you chose to drink more, and you chose to drink more and more and more until eventually you gave Satan a stronghold in your life in that particular area. And they want to make everything out to be a disease. And when you do that, it, 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 it basically is saying you can't help it. You're just going to have to learn to manage. You're going to have to learn to deal with it the best you can. God offers something way better than that. He offers victory, deliverance from our sin, deliverance from our doubts, deliverance from Satan's control. We must simply walk by faith. So the lesson is really clear from both Barak and Sisera. It boils down to this. Only by trusting God can you have true victory. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And thank you, Lord, that we can be victorious in our Christian life. That we can overcome the obstacles of the world, the flesh, and the devil through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not live below the standard that you have set. We would not be content to give up our victory, but Lord, that we would daily walk by faith and enjoy being on the winning team. And that, Lord, through our victorious living, you would be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.